Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, great. Um, I was just thinking, please excuse this um, analogy if, if you are uh, a vegetarian and you, and you don't eat, eat meat. But this is the best analogy I could come up with. Uh, and I was thinking, for us, as we grow with God, it's a bit like the different ways that there are to cook meat. Okay, So you can take a steak, can't you, and you can cook it on a really hot pan. And you sort of sear it on both sides. I know we've just had breakfast, so this isn't really doing much for us. But, you know, you cook it on both sides, and it's sort of however you like it, medium rare or whatever, and sort of tender and, and lovely. Or you can take a cut of meat, and you can put it in the oven, and you can cook it all day until it sort of falls apart. And, and there are but, – but both ways get the meat cooked, but they're very different. One's very extreme, and the other's much more gentle. But what – creates the transformation is contact with the heat. That's what changes the meat. Uh, and so for us, as we're here, you, you might go through this weekend, and there's some times where it's like God is cooking you on a griddle pan, okay? And it's intense, and it's high heat, and, and it's changing you, and, and it's, it's radical. And there are other times where it's like you're in the slow cooker, and God is just sort of marinating you and transforming you in that way. And so this weekend might be just another weekend in the slow cooker for you. And, and I trust that you come out more tender on the other side. <laughs> or this might be that intense griddle pan experience. Um, but either way, what we're longing for is that contact with God. That we would really encounter the heat of the kingdom uh, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, so that's the plan as we, as we um, jump into this time. Um, it, one of the things that I think I have found is so profound is that it's as we, as we see God, as we recognize God, as we are aware of God for who he truly is, that our lives become transformed. That's actually what transforms our lives. And so in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And there, there is something about this connection between seeing God and being transformed by God that is so vital for our growth. It is as we encounter God in all the different ways that that can look, that our lives actually get changed and get uh, transformed. Let's see if this works. Um, oh, well, there we go. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding or seeing the glory of the Lord. It's literally as in a mirror. So there we go. I'm, I'm tracking what's going on behind me in the mirror. So I've got to see everything in reverse. Okay. But it's as, as in a mirror, there is this reflection. It's like as you stand in front of it, you can actually perceive it and experience it. 
and encounter it and come close to it. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory, tenderness, to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And I was uh, listening to a talk in the week about why simply knowing right things and true things is not enough to change us. Really interesting. Uh, and, and they were interviewing um, quite a well-known um, pastor who has sort of been faithful in ministry for years and, and saying, why is it that, that knowing true things is not enough to bring about the transformation in us that we really need. And I thought the answer was so profound. He was saying, we actually have to see the beauty of the truth about God in order to be changed by it. The devil knows the truth about God, and it hasn't changed him. But it changes us as we see his glory and we appreciate his beauty. We're actually appreciating the truth about him. We are beholding the glory of God and it's transforming and changing us. And so that's really what we're continuing to pray for as we, as we journey further into this moment of encounter that Isaiah has. So I want to pray for that specifically just as, as we dive into this next section uh, of, of looking further and deeper into this amazing moment that Isaiah has, seeing the Lord high and lifted up. Thank you, Lord. And so, Lord, I do pray. I pray that as we, as we come together now, that, Lord, you would transform us as you draw us and pull us into a greater revelation of who you are. That, that our spirit would be active in this time along with our minds. Our minds are great helpers, but they are poor leaders in spiritual life. We are to be led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. But our minds are intimately involved. And so I pray, God, as we come into this time and we hear with our ears, that as much as we hear with our ears and see with our physical eyes, that, Lord, you would open the eyes of our hearts and the ears of our spirits that we might know in richer, deeper ways your glory and be changed. That we would encounter the heat of the kingdom through these scriptures and be transformed. That you would change us and that, God, you would empower us to bring transformational truth, life, ministry to others. As we get hot in you, that other people could catch it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, all right. So for those of you that have got your Bibles, we are, as I say, continuing in Isaiah. Uh, and um, we're going to continue just to look at this. So let's, let's go. Um, I've got from verse 2 there for some reason, but let me read from verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet. 
And with two they were flying, and they were calling or crying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now just to say something about these these seraphim, the word seraphim literally means burning ones. That's, that's what Isaiah is, is seeing here, these flaming angels. We know that God is an all-consuming fire. It's one of the ways that he is described. And it's as if these angels are ablaze with fire. And, and then there is this language that they are covering their faces and covering their feet and flying. And, and all of these verbs are in the continuous, in the Hebrew, they're the continuous action verbs. And it's meant to create the sense of this constant worshipful activity around the very being of God himself. And what they cry to one another is holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, God's name is qualified by the adjective holy in the Old Testament more than any of the other qualifiers in the Old Testament added together. Holiness is supremely the truth about God and who God is. And what God is like. Um, and the sort of root of this word to be holy is, is interesting. It has sort of two nuances. To be bright and to be separate or to be cut off, to be set aside. And it's as if it's trying to communicate God's total and complete moral majesty means that he is utterly, utterly unique. He is holy, holy, holy. And, and the cry of the seraphim is really helpful for us because it shows a very important link that runs right through the whole of the Bible. This link between the holiness of God and the glory of God. We are given this glimpse into the holiness of God. And what the holiness of God means is now, as we see that, we recognize the whole earth is full of his glory. In the Bible, God's glory is simply, wonderfully, the display or revelation of his holiness. God is holy, and when that holiness is seen, the Bible calls it glory. So if, if you're praying to see the glory of God, and we come together and we say, Lord, may, may you just reveal your glory in this place. Have you been around when we've prayed things like that or, or we've sung songs that are about the glory of the Lord? What the, the glory of the Lord is like switching on the television and what we get to see is the holiness of God revealed. It says this in Exodus chapter 15. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. And encountering the glory of God, encountering the holiness of God, transforms Isaiah in a really incredible way, just as it transforms us. And again, reading this uh, commentary of Mochia on, on the prophecy of Isaiah, he says something incredibly profound. 
He says that when in the Bible you see people afraid in the presence of God, and, and I mentioned that's sort of the dominant response, when God shows up in glory, when the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and all the priests fall on the ground and they, they can't do anything, or, the, or Jesus shows up in Revelation and, and John sees him, it's John who's, who's known him, his, sort of the, the whole of Jesus' ministry, he's literally slept basically and reclined with his ear on his chest and heard the breath of Jesus in his ears. But now he sees the glory of who Jesus is and falls at his feet as though dead. When in the Bible you see people afraid in the presence of God, it's not the consciousness of humanity in the presence of divine power, but the consciousness of sin in the presence of moral purity. That's what drives people to their knees and their faces as they come into contact with the holiness of God. John Piper puts it like this. He says, the glory of God is the manifestation of his holiness. God is glorious means God, God's holiness has gone public. I quite like that. In Leviticus 10 verse 3, God says, I will show myself holy among those who are near me. And before all the people... I will be glorified. When God shows himself to be holy, what we see is his glory. And this then becomes the response of Isaiah to seeing that. It says this in verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. If he wasn't sort of petrified enough as it was in the presence of God, there's now this flaming angel carrying this burning coal straight towards him, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. It's interesting, this, the word there, ruined, it, it's the Hebrew to describe the silence that follows after death or disaster. That's the, the imagery. And it's this idea that, that Isaiah comes into the presence of God and is so aware of his holiness and his moral perfection that he is now suddenly aware of his own sin in a completely different way. And he realizes he is utterly without hope to stand in the presence of this holy God. He is ruined. That, that sense of hopelessness that comes after death, which is so final, and so tragic, and there's nothing that you can do about it. And many of us have experienced the pain of that and the loss of that. It's like that's what Isaiah is experiencing in that moment. He's saying, I am undone in the presence of this holy God because my lips are unclean and I have no right to stand before him. I am ruined. You know, I was thinking about this and reading about this that. He doesn't confess 
a whole range of sin that we might think is particularly bad. He confesses the sin of his lips. He said, my speech has not been clean and I am ruined. The things that I have said, they are enough for me to be worthy of complete destruction in the presence of this absolutely pure and perfect, powerful, moral being. But what's so encouraging about this passage of scripture is Isaiah does not only encounter the holiness and glory of God. He also encounters God's love and his mercy and his grace. As the seraphim takes the coal from the altar and brings it to him. Now, the altar, if you're taking notes, this is the picture of Leviticus 6, of the unending fire. So the altar of the Lord in the tabernacle, there was meant to be a fire that never went out. And it was the place which you would come to bring sacrifice. And this is the whole thing that's so important. It's that God is a God of justice and wrath. And he looks at our sin and knows we are deserving of punishment. But in his mercy, he makes a way for that punishment not to land on us. And so there is this, this, um, this picture that people get to experience in the Old Testament of what comes ultimately in Jesus. As a sacrifice is brought and a death takes place. There is a death, but it's not of the people. It's of the sacrifice that comes onto the altar and is consumed. And there is atonement. These are the sort of biblical words. There is propitiation. That means there is a payment that's made. God does not forgive us without exercising his justice and his holiness. It's just he's made a way for that not to land on us. And within the Old Testament, it landed on the animals that were sacrificed. For us, it lands upon Christ, who is our sacrifice. He is our propitiation. He is our atonement. And the coal comes, this living coal, this live coal. And it touches the lips of Isaiah, the place where he has made confession. He confesses before God. God, I'm a man of unclean lips. And where there is repentance and confession, now God releases his grace and his forgiveness and his pardon and his healing and his transformation. It's so important that we see God the whole picture. And I was trying to think of what that's like. And and, and I wanted to do this as an experiment, but I couldn't set it up. Um, But you might be aware of light and if you take red light and blue light and green light and you shine it together the primary light colors what you get in the middle is white okay now if you take away the blue you don't get white do you you get you get the secondary color you get you get yellow and the same if you take away the green you don't get white you get you get the um the purple And it's the same with God. If we try to think about God, and in thinking about God, we remove anything of who he is. If we remove his love, perhaps let's go with red. You know, that's a sort of romantic color. If we remove his love, then we don't have God anymore. We've got something that we've created, this sort of wrathful being 
who is all-powerful and justice and judgment. But, but there's no grace. But equally, if we remove his justice and his grace and his holiness, we also don't have God anymore. We have something that we've made up, something that we've constructed. It's not white. It's not holy. It's not glorious. It's not the full gospel. It's yellow. Does that, so when we think about God, when we talk about God, it's not, we don't get to pick what God is like. We don't get to decide what the gospel is. We don't get to invent what we think is going to be palatable or what we think is going to be okay or, or what is going to be acceptable or, or what is going to go down all right. We don't get to decide what color God is. God is holy. But we get to come and know him on his terms in the way that he has decided that we can connect with him. Uh, I was reading, I'm not sure if you've heard of uh, Richard and Henry Blackaby. Um, they wrote a very famous book on experiencing God, um, which I recommend you get. If you've not read it, read it, get it. And, and this is um, from one of their study guides. And it's a little small, but I'm going to do my best to read it. And they say this about experiencing the real God and how we get to connect with the real God. They say this, God wants us to experience his joy. Hallelujah. John 15 verse 11. Yet we cannot experience his joy until we have mourned over our sin. If we do not grieve over the weight of our sin, we have no concept of sin's devastating power. If we treat our sin lightly, we demonstrate that we have no sense of the enormity of offense against almighty God. Our sin caused the death of God's son it causes us to fall short of what God intends Romans 3 and it brings pain and sorrow to others as well as ourselves the Bible says that those who grieve over their sin will draw near to God James 4 verse 8 to 10 those who mourn and weep over their sin are in a position to repent Luke 4 there cannot be repentance without the realization of the gravity of sin. And this is now really important. Regret for sin's consequence is not the same as sorrow for sinning against holy God. There is a real difference. Often we feel regret over the wrong things we've done because it impacts us badly. That's part of it, but it's not actually even the heart of it. It's recognizing what we've done has been an offense in the presence of the holy God. Confession of sin is not necessarily an indication of repentance. Repentance comes only when we acknowledge our transgression has come before, come from a heart that is far from God, and we are brokenhearted over our grievous offenses against a holy God. Jesus said that those who are brokenhearted over their sin will find comfort. They will experience new dimensions of God's love and forgiveness. His infinite grace is sufficient for the most terrible sin. But do not try and skip the grieving process of repentance in order to move on to experience his joy. God will not leave you to weep over your sin, but will forgive you and comfort you with his joy.
And I have found in my life, the greater my capacity has been to feel, experience, connect with my guilt before God, the richer, the fuller my experience of his love and grace and power in my life has been. Do you remember Jesus' words? Those who have been forgiven much, love much. When we don't understand how much we have been forgiven, it's like our love is shallow because our repentance has been shallow. What Isaiah needed What Isaiah needed was to have an awakening of his deepest need and his deepest desire. He needed a bigger revelation of how great and glorious God was to release in him his most pressing need. You know, I, th- I think um, when, when we think about what we want, what do we, what is our, what do we desire? Uh, often the things we desire are, are the things that we think are going to be most beneficial for us and most helpful for us in our lives. But then the context of our lives often sets what that is. So you wake up in the morning and you're about to have your shower and there's no cold water. Okay, And suddenly your set of desires have shifted and changed because you realize you have a need to be clean, you know, that, that was always there, but now you've become aware of it in a totally different way. And that desire is brought to the surface. Okay? And the situation that we are in determines what we really want. That person really wants something that's probably very different to most of us. And we will face these times where we're going to need to be ready to be before this great and glorious and holy God. And in that moment, we will discover the deepest desire of our hearts, which is actually to be able to be right before God, to be forgiven, to have our sin atoned, that we might stand and survive in the presence of an all-consuming fire. Isaiah needed to realize his real need. You know, this year we are are trusting as a church for a year of real growth in our capacity and ability to share our faith with other people, to be on mission for God, to see people that don't know God come into life-giving, life-transforming connection with him, to see the outreach muscle of the church flexed and strengthened and gymmed up and ready to go. But why? Why do we want to see that happen? Like what are we actually what are we actually heartbroken for? What do we really believe that people need in our world and in our community and in our society? John 3, perhaps one of the most famous um, chapters in the Bible when it comes to evangelism and mission and sharing our faith. But I think there are different sides to this that we need to see, like the color wheel that I just showed you. You can read John chapter 3 with 
red glasses or with blue glasses or with green glasses. And I think God's calling us to see them with white glasses, to see the whole package. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's like full red. God's love and grace and mercy. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen. Full red. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Can't miss the other colors. Verse 35 The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise God. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And that is the gravity of the situation. That our world is in. The wrath of God remains on them. It says that God is holding back his wrath in this season. In the Old Testament, people often wonder, why, why is the Old Testament so full of God's judgment? And the New Testament seems so full of God's grace. It's because God's pressed pause on judgment in this season. Between the death and resurrection of Jesus and his coming again. God pressed pause on judgment. But that doesn't mean it's not coming. It's being delayed so that as many as possible can come to faith in Christ. But don't be deceived into thinking it's gone. It's not gone. It's on pause so that people can come to faith. The God who is the God of wrath and judgment, the holy God, the all-consuming fire is still that same God. And Jesus comes again and it says when he comes, he will tread out the winepress of his fury upon the nations that have rejected him. But we have this opportunity to take the gospel to people that they might know life and hope and peace and joy. And stand in the presence of an almighty God and not be afraid, but actually be held by him and call him father and know him intimately as Abba. This is the wonder and glory of the gospel. But we can't lose sight of who he is. Because if... When we go out, what's in our heart is, you know, well, we, we sort of hope that if people come to the church, their life can be improved a bit. And, and church can be a space where people can find community together and, and relationships and connection. And it can be an environment where the sort of the, the good things of humanity can be expressed and flourish. If that's all we have to offer, that's great. I mean, that's so important. We love that. We're going to do that all night tonight. <laughs> and, and, and connect and have fun and eat and celebrate. 
Absolutely. But if that's it, then we don't really actually have much to offer. We don't actually have much to give. What, why sacrifice? What, you know, Paul says, if, if the resurrection, if this whole thing's not true, then we're to be pitied among all other people. Why does he say that? Because they're all being martyred for their faith. They're all dying for what they believed because they knew that a day was coming when there would be a judgment of all people and everyone would stand before God and they'd have to give an account of did they put their trust and hope in Jesus or did they not? And they gave their lives for it. Now that's something worth giving your life for. Having a place that people can connect and have fun and have relationships, you know, that's great. But I can't call you to give up your life for that. I can call you to give up your life for this. Because it is eternally valuable and significant and important. See, if we miss the essential truth, that without Jesus, without being touched by the coals, without recognizing the holiness of God and our utter desperate need for God, it's like the whole engine of the church makes no sense at all. Makes no sense at all. Our worship, our discipleship, our mission. And it's all the colors. It's not all green. It's not all wrath. But it's also not all mercy. It's white. It's the whole picture. It's all of who God says he is. We get to come to know God as he's revealed himself. We don't get to pick what he's like. But he is glorious and worthy of our love and devotion. God's love for humanity means he extends grace. God's holiness and justice means his wrath remains on people until they receive him. And this is the battle that we get to enter into because we have been changed and we have been saved and we have been restored and we know him as Abba and we have a hope that goes beyond the grave and we can give that to others. And isn't that worth giving our lives for? Isn't that worth giving our time for? Isn't that worth giving, isn't that worth looking foolish for? Do you see how everything changes when you see the full picture? When it's about, you know, I'm going to pick to do the ministries that I like because they make me feel good. Or I'm going to, I'm going to pick the lifestyle that, that I think is going to best help me to self-actualize as a person. There's no gravity in that and weight and power. You know, I've been, I've been reading about revival in the UK, reading about revival across the world. You know what changes when God starts to move in this way? People start to see God the full picture. They start to actually not just know it, but appreciate it. His love and his holiness. And, and I think if we can catch some of that, the engine of this church, missionally, evangelistically, worship, discipleship, love for one another, 
is going to go through the roof because suddenly we have the engine installed in the way that it's meant to be. And we can shower with hot and cold water. Okay, You realize, don't you, you can't have both because our hot water is so hot, you don't need to boil the kettle. You can just make tea on demand, but it will cook you if you get in the shower. Okay, we need both. So I'm going to pray for us now. We're going to have a tea break and we're going to come back at, what time is it, Allah? 10 past. Okay, we got half an hour. Okay, as a tea bake. But but I I I wanted to share this before we do the next part of what we're going to look at together, which I hope and trust is going to be a fun, challenging, engaging time as we start to wrestle with what it begins to look like to live out a life that's been changed by what Isaiah was beginning to see. Okay. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you are all the lights. I thank you that you are grace and glory and love and holiness and justice. God, we do celebrate that you are justice and that evil in this world will be destroyed and that the evil that's in me will be destroyed. And that your love and grace and power is strong enough and great enough to do that. To change us and empower us to be life-giving hope to others. And so Lord, I, I pray that you wouldn't sort of, you wouldn't let us disconnect with this. That we wouldn't skip along the surface of the reality of who you are, but that we would be able to sink right into it. Not just know the truth, but appreciate the truth. To see the glory and the beauty of who you are. And like Isaiah, to be transformed and changed, made whole, set free. Thank you, Lord. You are worthy of our full attention and the fullness of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.